Exodus chapter 21, verses 33 and following. When a man opens a pit, or when a man digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restoration. He shall give money to its owner, and the dead beast shall be his. When one man's ox butts another, so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and share the price, and the dead beast also shall they share. Or if it's known that the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has not kept it in, he shall repay ox for ox and the dead beast shall be his. If man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If a thief is found breaking in and struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. If a man causes a field or a vineyard to be grazed over and lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution for the beast in the own field and for his own vineyard. If fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that the stacked grain or the standing grain or the field is consumed, he will, who started the fire shall make full restoration. If a man gives to his neighbor money or goods or to keep safe, and it is stolen from the man's house, then if the thief is found, he shall repay double. If the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall come near to God and show whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. For every breach of trust, whether it is an ox or a donkey, for a sheep, for a cloak, for any kind of lost thing of which one says this is it, the case of both parties shall come before God. The one whom God condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. If man gives his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep and any other beast to keep safe and it dies or is injured in his driven away without anyone seeing, an oath by the Lord shall be between them to see whether or not he has put his hand on his neighbor's property. The owner shall accept the oath and he shall not make restitution. But if, the stolen, uh, it, but if it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to its owner. If it is torn by beasts, let him bring it as evidence. He shall not make restitution for what has been torn. If man borrows anything of his neighbor and is injured or dies or the owner not being with it, he shall make full restitution. If the owner was with it, he shall not make restitution for it has hired and it came for its hiring fee. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for if you are soldiers in the land of Egypt, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn 
and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows, and your children's follow this. Be encouraged. If you lend money to any of my people with you who are poor, you shall not be like the moneylender to him. You shall not extract interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall his sheep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler nor your people. Uh, you shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your son shall be given to me. You shall not do the same with your oxen. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the fields. You shall throw it to the dogs." You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join the hands with the wicked man to be, malicious, to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so that, as to pervert justice. Nor shall you be partial to the poor man in his lawsuit. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with you. You shall uh, rescue it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due to the poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from false charge and do not kill an innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for bribe blinds, the clear-sighted, and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of the sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Well, let's just take an offering and go home today. Uh, today, in front of us, we have a really interesting passage for us as uh, Christians, as followers of Jesus, both in America and uh, from two thousand or the thousands upon thousands of years since this was initially written. If you have been with us, you understand that as we've been working through the book of Exodus, we have come to a place where Exodus and God's people are at the foot of Mount Sinai. Uh, Moses is on top of it. The other people are down at the bottom of this mountain. And there's this exchange as God gives, decrees his law um, to Moses and then to God's people. Over the last several months, we've been working through the Ten Commandments, and then Pastor Justin picked up in uh, chapter 21 last week, and then today we're covering a little bit of that, some of uh, 22, and then a portion of 23, because it all seemingly falls uh, together. Now, how many of you guys have ever heard, if you've been here, you should raise your hand, uh, you've heard sermons on the Ten Commandments? Have you ever heard a sermon on chapter 22, or 21 for that matter? 
or 23 for that matter. As one of my friends says, if the Ten Commandments is the most preached about section um, of the book of Exodus, uh, chapters 21, 22, and 23 are the least preached chapters of all of the book of Exodus. And a lot of that has to do with the context that we have. Um, and it's really important for us to get, all right? Now, I promise to you that this still has some practical information, and hopefully and ultimately it's going to point to the person and work of Jesus, even though we've covered a lot of variety of different things. Let me explain to you what's taking place here. Inside the Old Testament, you must understand that there are several different types of law that are being given. The first type of law is the moral law. That's what's found in the Ten Commandments, right? Like, honor your parents, don't steal, don't use the Lord's name in vain. Those are moral laws for all people for all time. If you are a human being, then you should honor, respect the Lord, and follow those commands. Yet simultaneously, what the Lord is doing inside the Exodus is that he's not only setting his people free, but he's also establishing them as an actual nation. We are not a Christian nation. The Israelites were a religious nation. So not only is he establishing moral law, but from those moral laws, he's establishing constitutional, or also known as civil law. Like, how do we take these Ten Commandments and really play them out in the way that these people, the Israelites, the Jewish people, were actually living? That's why it's a major disconnect for you and I. I think there's probably only about two people in this room that probably own the ox. Trevor Ayers, and somebody I don't know, all right? Um, many of us have probably not dug a pit and been like, man, I'm going to, you know, go to a, a cow field, dig a pit, and just hope a cow falls into it. Like, you probably have not done that. Um, I know very few witches. I do know some um, that claim to be witches, because if you've heard of the religion Wicca, that's actually witchcraft is what that is. And so witches still exist. Sorcerers exist. Um, because there's a sorcerer's stone, and Harry Potter's really cool. Um, and so, um, but when we come to these sorts of things, it's important for us to understand, again, moral law, we follow those. We're to follow those. And yet civil law, um, and it, it was regarded to just be for the Jewish people. Think about laws. I mean, you couldn't imagine taking the speed limit and putting that inside the Bible. Camels just don't go that fast, all right? And I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, and they would every so often they would put those uh, lines across um, to tell you how fast you're going, right? And it blinks and everything and says you like slow down. Anybody follow me? As kids, we would try to run really fast to see how fast we could run. Well, that doesn't make sense. Again, applying that to Old Testament law, uh, it's a different context, all right? It doesn't mean that the civil law isn't important for us and that we can't glean from it as we did last week, as we'll do today, and as we'll do next week. Um, but also that, as we're going to see in the next couple of weeks, is that there's something called the ceremonial law, and this is how the Jewish people are to worship God. There's things like the temple. There's the sacrificial system. There's the reason why that we don't have a bunch of goats and lambs up here today or doves that we're cutting in half today as followers of Jesus, and that was because it was given specifically to a group of people, the Jewish people, for ceremonial law. So three different types of law. The moral law, we follow that, right? The civil law, we glean from that. The ceremonial law, we glean from that. Everybody got me? So what's reading here today is civil law. Ten commandments put into practice, and the early Jewish people, the Israelites, would have understood why these were in there. They owned ox, right? They knew witches, I guess, right? 
and so we see in these passages um, that it's all-encompassing is that what we've talked about over and over and over again through the moral law, and now as we're looking at some civil laws, is that the ultimate goal of this, Jesus is going to tell us what it is, and that is to love God with everything and to love your neighbor with everything. And so God is showing early Jews um, the importance and value of loving their neighbor and how they do that practically. So, for instance, you see two different things taking place here. You see restitution, right? And you see justice taking place, right? And, And we still believe in these sorts of practices. Like if you were to borrow something from someone and it breaks... What are you supposed to do? Now, I know some of y'all weren't taught this, but what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to replace it. You're supposed to fix it, right? If you break something, it's in your... That's, that's the same sort of civil law that's taking place here. If you have an ox and it's not, you're not stolen or those sorts of things, but it's to die in your company, then, man, you're supposed to take... You're to make it right, right? And so that's a lot of what's taking place here is that that's a really big deal to God. Why? Because he wants you to love God, he wants you to love neighbor, and one of those things is by taking care of the property and possessions that other people own. When we mess up, when we break things, we make it right. We make restitution. That's what's supposed to be taking place here as a sign of loving our God and loving our neighbor. Now, the truth behind the truth is that what we can see here, again, taking place is the, the kind of grand scheme of these passages is this real truth about, again, restoration, um, restitution, and biblical justice. And so I'm, in case you're fearful this morning, even with children in the room, that you think I'm going to dive in specifically and spend the next hour talking about a particular verse inside of this, I'm not going to do that because, again, Um, It doesn't generally apply to us, but the truth behind the truth, the ultimate goal of what God is doing in this passage does apply, and that is revolving around, again, restitution and biblical justice. Now, if you have your Bible, and it's your Bible, whether that's that journal that we give, gave you or you've brought your, your, your big Bible, whatever that is, I want you to know something with me here today. And uh, some of this that I'm going to tap into just a little bit, in case you did not know this, is a major part of controversy within specifically the Western American Christian worldview. If you have your Bible in front of me, you need, or in front of you, you need to understand this. The, the chapters, the verses, the actual scriptures are inerrant. They are from God. They do not contradict. They are the Word of God. However, in the original way that this was written, the uh, verses were not there, the verse numbers, nor was the subject headings there. Now notice um, in chapter 22 specifically that the, the, the Bible, when it was written in the canon to help us understand and flow, um, it separates between restoration or restitution and likewise um, from uh, the laws there on justice. But notice the wording in the subheading. What's it say in your Bible? Mine says in the ESV, laws about social justice. Laws about social justice. Now, um, cards on the table, you and I can talk about this afterward. Um, I would encourage you to strike out the word social. 
It doesn't mean what it used to mean. All right? And within our culture and with even Christian culture, the term social has become a major dividing line amongst Christians on what God is actually calling us to do. There is, it needs no qualifier, according to Scripture. Justice is justice. Just like truth doesn't need the qualifier of absolute before it. It's either true or it's not true. According to the Scripture, it's either just, it's either justice or it's injustice. And the needing for a qualifier such as social at one time would have fit into the context. And I know that this is, again, can be debatable amongst certain circles, but I would encourage us not to use that qualifier because I'm not sure that we really understand what that term means anymore. It has been hijacked, I would suggest, by sin, Satan, and death to mean something that you and I do not mean. At its nth degree actually means the social gospel in some way, which is heretical, all right? It has to do a lot with a political understanding, social justice. It has a political understanding. It can even lead itself to what is known as socialism. And a lot of the socialistic warriors that are out there are talking about equality, not merely of everybody starting from the same place, um, but rather has to do with economics, where everyone is given the exact same thing. But we don't see that in Scripture. Even Jesus himself would say that the poor are always going to be among you. We're never called to just kind of equally distribute so that everybody gets paid the same, everybody has the same house, all those sorts of things. The Bible is not about socialism. The Bible is about God, all right? So I just put that little bit of warning here today, um, and I would encourage you to spend some time. There's some great books out there. Um, I would encourage you to start with the Bible, but then there are some great books out there, some great resources to take this even further for you. If you didn't know that that, that, uh, that actually is taking place and that there's this major dividing line, maybe you should forget the last five minutes of what I just said. All right? For those of you who want more information about it, and again, I'd love to have a conversation about it. I know that Justin can as well. There's, again, start with the Bible. Then there's some great resources out there. But I'm going to be talking about justice today, biblical justice, because I think that's what the Bible is talking to. Now, when we talk about justice, uh, we, we, we see that justice is both getting what people deserve, both reward and punishment. All right? Justice is about people getting what they deserve, both reward and punishment. Again, it comes back to this overarching understanding of, like, make it right. Whether you're rich or whether you're poor, like, things should be done rightly. There's a right way and a wrong way to do these things. I love what pastor and theologian Kevin DeYoung says about this. He says, doing justice means following the rule of the law, showing impartiality, paying what you're promised, not stealing, not swindling, not taking bribes, not taking advantages of the weak, because they are too uninformed or unconnected to stop you. This is what we're talking about, about justice, is that God is about justice. Again, if you break something, it should be made right. If you kill someone, then a life should be taken. It's making things right. God was illustrating through all of the things that we just read that in these practical civil laws um, that God's people are to practice biblical justice and mercy. This is core to what it means to be a lover of God and a lover of people. Why does justice matter to God? Well, it matters to God because this is literally who God is, that he is a God of justice. 
Another pastor, Tim Keller, says this, Biblical justice is not, first of all, a set of bullet points or a set of rules and guidelines. It's rooted in the very character of God and is the outworking of that character, which is never less than just. God is just. God is right. So therefore, what does he want? He wants things to be right. All right? For everyone, for every creed, for every color, um, for every nation, uh, no matter where you're from, that there, there is rightness and there is wrongness, and God is just. And therefore, he calls us to experience and to express justice as well. Now, when we look at Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4, it says, The rock, his work is perfect, for all of his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is he. Again, this is talking about God. Inside the Old Testament, it's written, in case you're new to the Bible, it's written in a language called Hebrew. Um, one of those Hebrew words that is used is this act of justice in regards to punishment. That's the one that we love, right? That's the reason why you and I watch shows all the time about crime. I mean, how many CSIs can there be, right? We love to watch documentaries about criminals who go absolutely crazy and we hope by the end, what are they going to get? Making of murder fans, all right? We're hoping, we're obsessed with crime and justice. We want and believe that people should get punished for their crime. The Bible is full of this idea of, again, the right punishment, that the punishment fits the crime. The, the Bible is pro-capital punishment in right cases. The, the Bible is even pro-imprisonment. And yet, we see inside the Scripture, I was talking to some guys earlier here in the church, is that what we don't see inside the Scripture is this idea of life imprisonment. It's hard to get that inside the Scripture. Now, what there is, is there's a harder view of capital punishment. You can be killed um, by the government for your crimes a lot more and a lot sooner. But also, there's this place where there is hope and there is restoration that we come to, a place where that changes where you're set free. Again, this is in, within the civil law of Jewish life. But all of this bursts from, again, these two Hebrew words. One is punish the wicked. Amen? Let's punish the wicked. We get really jazzed about punishment. Let's get them. Get what they deserve. Eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, right? Yet, the most common word inside of the Hebrew language for justice is actually not about punishment, but it's about restoration, Justice that leads to restoration. Meaning that we help those who are in real need. May I suggest the term real is really important. I think that's an adjective, right, Kathy? She's my English teacher. Is that it, it's describing this, all right? It is a qualifier that those who need real help, that the Bible says that if we're going to be a just people because our God is filled with justice, then we've got to be a people that is about restoring people. And that's what justice is. You may think of the, often of the word charity. God practices perfect charity. He practices perfect justice. He is the perfect judge. He is never sentenced anyone wrongly. 
He has always done that in a perfect way. According to Daniel chapter 9, verse 14, the Lord our God is just in everything that he does. That means that God is right in every decision that he makes. He does so perfectly. God cares about what is right and wrong. He's concerned with what takes place among his people. He wants the law on this physical earth even to be upheld no matter of economic status. No matter of marital status, no matter of your gender, position, society, the law is the law and is the same for everyone. Later on in the book of Leviticus, which has a lot of laws in it, a lot of civil laws for the Jewish people, and that's why old people, excuse me, wiser people will often come to younger people and say, you can't have that too, too. the Bible says you can't, right? While they're simultaneously wearing a a shirt that's made out of polyester and cotton, which the Bible simultaneously says that you cannot do for the Jewish people. All right? So there's you some free ammunition for your wise older people in your life. Okay? They I bet they eat catfish on Fridays, go to Harper's, all right? Which is also something you cannot do if you're a Jewish person in the civil law. But in Leviticus, it says, you shall not be partial to the poor or deferred to the great. Do you get that? That in justice, there's no partiality toward the poor or to the wealthy. But in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor, that you're doing what is right, that you're a reflection of God. Deuteronomy 16, 19 says, you shall not show partiality and you shall not accept a bribe for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. I once heard someone say this, that you're better off rich and guilty than poor and innocent. Justice has a problem with both of those things. If it is... Have you ever noticed, again, I I grew up in the the early 90s, and I remember watching in school the O.J. Simpson trial, right? And I'm not here to decide whether or not that it was right or wrong or anything like that. But we've all noticed before, and we've probably even made the comment, that if you are wealthy, that you have a tendency to get off. That you don't get the punishment that you deserve in an equal, that if a poor person does the exact same crime, Right? Is there lots of evidence for that? Well, the Bible says that that is unjust. That whether they're rich or if they're poor, if the punishment should fit the crime and it has no partiality towards their social or economic standard. What is right is right. And God has called us, as he did the Israelites, to be a people that are a part of this practice. It's going to be different for us. Again, we're thousands of years since this was initially written. We are not Israelites. We are Gentiles. We are followers of Jesus. And so, but the general premise that we see inside of these passages in regards to restitution and justice, then you and I are to be following those, and hopefully you will see that here in just a moment of why, because of Jesus. In Jeremiah 22, 3, it says this, Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed. And do no wrong or violence to the resident alien and the fatherless and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. One of the most famous passages about the responsibility of us as followers of Jesus is also found in the Old Testament, but 
And again, Jesus is going to illustrate this, and when Jesus illustrates this and points back to the Old Testament, that's why it's cue for us to really clue into these things. But in Micah 6, 8, and some of you have probably heard this passage, he says, He has told you, O man, who is good, and what does the Lord require of you? But what? To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. So this is what God establishes. God is just, he is right, he is holy, and therefore has called us to live in such a way inside of a crazy culture that is unjust, that we should be full of justice. Both, yes, the punishment should fit the crime for all people, and yet simultaneously that we should be a part of justice that is about restoring people because they're image bearers of God. They have value. All people have value value. So how does this then confront us? Well, in Genesis, we see with Adam and Eve that they're given rule over everything. According to what, though? Their own laws or God's laws? Well, according to God's law, humanity was equal in value and dignity, no matter what their status or their race was. Once sin enters into the picture, the very nature, our very nature as humans, is transformed from, from that of being a God follower to now being a God opposer. If you do not have a relationship with Jesus here today and anyone out in this world does not have a genuine relationship with God, then they are the enemy of God. You are still in your former nature. You are bent towards sin, Satan, and death 100% of the time. We see that this is taking place and that from the very beginning, after sin enters into the world and into our hearts and continuing in today, is that we have within us this real self-appeasing self-interest among us, do we not? And we were told pretty much to get all that you can get, to be at the very top of everything by stepping on the necks and the backs of everyone around you. But this is not the cause of Christ. Things have drastically changed from what we see with God. If you remember back at the end of Genesis, in the very beginning of Exodus, at the end of Genesis, God's people, the Israelites, are in Egypt. And how is their relationship with the Egyptians? It is good. An actual Israelite named Joseph is the second in command in all of the land. Their relationship for years and years and years had been good, had been right. It was a good working relationship. It was a just relationship. However, by the time, if you remember back to Exodus chapter 1, what's taking place? There's a new Pharaoh, 430 years has passed, and they do not know of this guy named Joseph. They begin to be scared by all of the immigrants who were the Israelites who are now living among them. They're starting to be outnumbered. They continue to be fruitful and multiply, as God told them to do inside the book of Genesis. And the Egyptians are looking around like, hey, if we don't do something about this, if we don't suppress this, if we don't suppress these people in this birth rate, then we're going to be overthrown and they're going to take control. So what does Pharaoh do? He puts them into slavery. He puts them into bondage. And he kills the firstborn male child. Now, again, greed and fear would lead to this, but as you've been with us this year in the book of Exodus, what do we hear? God hears the cries of these slaving people. These people are in slavery, the Israelites are in slavery, and God begins to hear their cry. What does he do? He sets 
them free. And then, on top of it, because he's just, he punishes the wicked. Egypt, remember all of the plagues that came? Right? Remember the death that came? God punishes then the wicked of these slave owners. He punishes them for their injustice. Now, we would think that after leaving and living in all these years of bondage and having relative after relative after relative, that you could say, man, this person died because of this. This person has been beat to death. Maybe even you're living and you're walking through the wilderness and you're at the foot of this mountain, yet you're covered in scars from the whip of the oppressors. God establishes this new nation, right? And he gives them the moral law. He gives them the civil law. He gives them the ceremonial law. And he tells them all the way back in Genesis that, hey, when Abraham, your father, when he sets up this new nation through him, then what's going to happen is you're going to be a blessing to the nations. But ladies and gentlemen, if you keep reading the Old Testament, what do the Israelites do? They become just like their enemies the Egyptians. They begin to be full of injustice. They begin to take slaves. And I'm not talking about, as Pastor Justin talked about, like indentured servant. I'm talking about taking of slaves, whips, beat downs. (laughs) They become their very worst enemy. The very thing that God was saying, never be, and why he gives us all of these laws. And you, you get to Leviticus in your Bible reading plan, you're just like, oh my gosh, can we just... Stop this already. Why? It's because God is a God of justice. He's trying to keep his people being a people of justice. And yet, because of sin, Satan, and death resting in their heart, what are they always bent toward? More injustice and becoming their worst nightmares. And this is what the Israelites do. See, knowing what is right... And doing what is right are two different things. And this is something that you and I struggle with every single day. You know what is right and good and just to do. And yet you and I are daily, moment by moment, minute by minute, are prone to doing exactly what we know we shouldn't do. In most cases, it is not out of ignorance. It is willful disobedience to God's law. And this is where we find ourselves. So how can we ever obey? How can we ever follow this God? If we speed this up, you know, what does Jesus say to us about this? So imagine from the moment that this is written in the book of Exodus, probably a thousand, few thousand years pass before Jesus comes. And yet, how do we see Jesus come? Christmas is coming. I know our Christmas tree is going up this week. Don't, don't hate. And in that, how does Jesus come? Jesus leaves the very throne room of God. He leaves all the wealth, unimaginable wealth that, that has been given. He is the prince. He's the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And what does Jesus do? He comes to these Israelite folk. He comes to these people. He comes to these people, and how does he come, though? He's born a Jew. He leaves his throne room. He's laid in a manger. So from throne 
to major, a, a wooden box for feeding kids. He's a Jewish man in a time and place where they've greatly faded. God's people have greatly drifted from these laws and from these practices. And who is Jesus' primary ministry to? Jewish people. The same people who are given the law are the same people who know what is right and yet don't practice what is right. So let's illustrate this in a way that you and I can understand this as Christians. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the New Testament. Inside the New Testament, it goes like this. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. I want you to turn to the book of Luke. It's inside the New Testament. Luke was a physician, traveling companion of a guy named Paul who wrote most of the New Testament. Inside this, Luke gives very detailed descriptions of Jesus and his ministry. So Luke chapter 10, turn with me there. And I want to illustrate this, not by a personal story, but by a biblical story, because Jesus says these things way better than I ever can. On this theme of justice and God's justice, we see Jesus show up into this scene. Jesus is speaking to a group of Jewish people, and listen to what he says in verse 25 of chapter 10. He's going to tell a parable, a story. He says this, And behold, a lawyer stood, stood up to him to test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So imagine this. Jesus is having a show off. With a lawyer. It's believed that this lawyer like really knows the Old Testament. He's a smart guy. He's a critical thinker. He knows his stuff. And they're trying to catch Jesus. And he's trying to have this intellectual battle with Jesus about the law. And so Jesus, or this guy says to Jesus, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Man, that's a great question. You should be asking that question in this place today. And so Jesus responds with a question. It's a good professor right there. What is written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer answers. Notice how he answers. What's he give us? What we've already been talking about. The great commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength, and with all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. That's how the lawyer responds. If he's in my class at Western, what does he get? He gets 100%. That's the right answer. To love God and to love people. And so what does Jesus say to the lawyer? You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. That's where salvation is. Loving God and from that love for God, man, you love people. But this lawyer cannot keep his mouth shut. And what does he say? He continues on. But he, the lawyer, desiring, notice this word, to justify himself, says to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And who is my neighbor? Notice what the lawyer is trying to do there. He got the answer right. Love God and to love your neighbor. But what is he trying to do? He is trying to now qualify who his neighbor is. Because let's all face it, man, it's really easy to love people who are easy to love. 
And it's really difficult to love people who you don't like. And there's a variety of reasons for that. Maybe it can be where they come from. Maybe it can be their social economic status. Uh, maybe, it, maybe it can be their, their race, and, and the list goes on and on and on and on and on. But the idea of what God calls you to, notice this, is that, that when God says to love him and to love your neighbor as himself, is that neighbor term is really, really broad. Notice he doesn't say, well, you've got to pick ten. Ten people, love them faithfully for the rest of your life, and it's all good. When Jesus, when the Bible is using the term neighbor there, and when Jesus is using it, how many people is he talking about? He is talking about everyone. To love God and to love everyone as you love yourselves. You don't get to pick and choose who your neighbors are. And this guy's trying to qualify. He's trying to say, not what do I have to do now? He's saying, what do I not have to do now? And what does Jesus do? He gives this famous parable, this famous statement. If you keep reading with me in verse 30, this is Jesus' response. He says, a man is going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. That's a, 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 according to scholars, that's a passage of land that you probably would not want to travel, especially alone. So from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. So everybody got this. This man is traveling alone. Robbers come. They take all of his stuff. They beat him to the point where he looks like Rocky Balboa. He just beat, left for dead. He cannot help himself. He cannot help himself. And look at what happens. Now, by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So, this man, he's been beat to death, he's left in this ditch, and all of a sudden, there is a godly man. He's a priest. Imagine, um, he's like a pastor, again, because it's believed that this is a Jewish guy who's in the ditch, and this is a Jewish priest. He's, he's called to serve and to care and to shepherd this man, and yet, what happens? He sees this bad thing happening on the side of the street, and the guy's like, if I don't look at it, then I won't be responsible for it. Now, according to Jewish custom, if you were a first-time reader and hearing of this, you would probably actually have a lot of compassion for that priest. His responsibility was to live a high life above reproach, and, and um, ceremonial cleanliness was huge for a priest. So probably at first glance, when you would read this, you'd probably say, oh, it, it, it seems kind of sh- a little bit shady, but, but we understand it because he's a priest and he doesn't need to become ceremonial unclean by touching blood and, and, and all of that sort of stuff that this guy, he, he may be going to work, and if he's ceremonial unclean, then he can't work in the temple, so on and so forth, all right? So maybe you show a little bit of grace toward that guy. Well, Jesus keeps going. He says, so likewise, a Levite. Imagine this is kind of equivalent to like a really good church member a good assistant in the church, a good servant within the church. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place that saw him, passed by on the other side. Notice what happens. 
good follower of God, sees the exact same man, and he does the exact same thing that the priest does. He walks to the other side. This man is with now, he has no excuse. Like, he should be serving this person who cannot take care of his own needs. Justice, this man cannot accomplish on his own. He is beaten. He is robbed. He is left for dead. And now a priest who claims to follow God, love God, love your neighbor, walks by the Levite, good church member, who should love God and love people, also walks by. But notice, Jesus keeps going. Verse 33, But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took the two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So finally, this third guy that comes by is a Samaritan. Now, one of the things that you and I don't understand um, is, uh, unless you're, you're really familiar with the Bible, is the the oh-my-goodness moment that Jesus would have just illustrated by saying that the Samaritan was about justice. See, within Jewish customs, uh, Samaritans and Jews, they absolutely hated each other. They were absolute enemies, of, and a lot of it was racial tension. See, a Samaritan is what they, the Jews would call a half-breed. They were mixed people. They were both a Gentile and a Jew who had gotten together at some point, made babies, and the Jewish people hated them. They would call them dogs. They would thank God every morning that they, they were not Samaritans. If you were a Jewish person during this time and you had to get from north to south or south to, 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 to north, um, and you had to go through an area that was known to be Samaritan, the custom was, was that you would walk around that entire place. It didn't matter how long it took you, how much more time it took you. You did not want to even get the dust on your body from the Samaritans. You understand the hate here. This is racial hate, racial hate at the nth degree. These people are half human, the Jewish people thought. That's a long way from love God and love people. And so when Jesus is speaking to Jewish people who are high and mighty on their own horses and their religious horses, and, and, and the, the hero here ends up being a Samaritan, now can you picture what is taking place here? Is that they were unjust or unjust, and, and their, their mortal enemies were filled with justice. Filled with justice. Notice the question that Jesus has. Which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. You go and do likewise. The lawyer tried to limit the law. And yet, according to one of the commentators about this very passage and about what Jesus was saying, is like Jesus refused. Instead, he made it clear that loving your neighbor means making costly sacrifices for anyone in need, including your enemies. What does Jesus reveal? 
He reveals in this very passage that it is impossible for you and I, for the Jewish people, for you and I as even followers of Jesus, that it is impossible for us to reach the the love capacity toward God and toward your neighbor. That it, it is absolutely impossible for you as a single individual in your own will and in your own nature to love everyone on the planet who's in need of that love. It's impossible for us to accomplish this. Ultimately, Jesus is saying, guess what? The law inside the Old Testament, the laws that are given inside the New Testament, it's not to belittle those in any way. It is to show our desperate need that you and I, you can not save yourself. You can't save yourself because you cannot love perfectly all of the neighbors on the planet who are experiencing injustice in their lives. Now, this doesn't mean that we're not supposed to participate in that as followers of Jesus. We'll get to that in just a second. But it once again shows us the magnitude and the, the, the gospel of the beauty of Christ. That Jesus is saying that you cannot do this. But I can. Jesus who can love God perfectly. Jesus who can love his people perfectly. Jesus came to do what? Jesus came to save sinners. And what are sinners? Anyone and everyone who has ever broken a single law of God. Are you guilty? Am I guilty? And Jesus is saying, you're in desperate need of me. You're in desperate need of me. See, think for a moment that in all of these stories about restitution and justice and all of this, and even the Good Samaritan story, is that think about how far that Jesus actually come to be just, to war against injustice. Think how far Jesus came, that we're the enemies of God, that sin has left us robbed of our true identity, that sin has left us beaten under its weight. And, and unlike the person that we see here, is that, 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 that we're not almost dead, but rather the scripture would say is that you and I are dead. That you and I are dead in our sins, in our trespasses. That you're a dead person walking. And Jesus is reminding us, even in this very moment, that he is the just and the justifier. I ask, I ask these sorts of things every time that I talk through parables. They're like, who are you in the story? Are you the lawyer? Asking what God really requires. And what's the small print that you can get by with? Are you the priest who knows good and well what to do, but does not do it? Are you the Levite? You know, you're a good churchgoer, and you're a good American Christian. You do all the right things, and yet you don't care about the injustices in the world. Are you the Samaritan? 
Man, he sees the injustices in the world. And we, again, we have to be careful about latching ourselves to things that the Bible doesn't latch ourselves. A lot of what social justice is attached to is that they're actually promoting for, fighting for, wanting policy written, wanting politics in order for sin to be a blanket and agreed upon thing within our world and our country. And yet that's not what the Bible is calling to us to. When he's talking about justice, he's saying, man, that these things are wrong. It's not the promotion of sin. It's that sin is taking place inside these people's lives, and I am calling you to speak up, to proclaim the gospel in the midst of all of those things. So who are you? Are you the lawyer? Are you the priest? Are you the Levite? Are you the Samaritan? Maybe. But you know who you and I really are? We're the beaten, broken man in the ditch. You're the beaten, broken, robbed man in the ditch. And ladies and gentlemen, let me clear up something really quickly. Jesus is not the Samaritan. Jesus is the Savior. See, what the Samaritan could do as an earthly human being would only last so far. You know that man that's robbed? Guess what happened to him? He eventually died. He may have even got robbed again. You know what the woman at the well that Jesus gives uh, water to? They tell her to drink together. She became thirsty again. Poor Lazarus. I mean, he's raised from the death. That dude had to die twice. All the people that Jesus heals with those mighty miracles, guess what takes place? They get sick again. They, they die again. Jesus is not the Samaritan. No, Jesus went much further than the Samaritan could ever go. He calls us to be like the Samaritan because that Samaritan was reflective of who he truly is. But let us not belittle the magnitude that Jesus was willing to go, that Jesus came from heaven because there was injustice in our very lives. And we were not only the, the, the children of it, but we were the creators of it. We were the very enemies of God. And yet Jesus leaves his throne room. He goes much further than the Samaritan could ever go in his humanity. And yet Jesus comes as the Savior. And what he does last. God is just. He will punish the wicked. And he will reward the righteous. And this passage just reminds us today how you and I can never be righteous and, and can never receive a right reward because if we did, ladies and gentlemen, like in the Baker house, we do not use the word fair because if we wanted fairness, you and I would all be dead when you compare yourselves to an almighty God. But rather, what do we cling to? What do we hold on to? This God who is just and the justifier and who is filled with mercy, who is filled with mercy. You and I should not seek justice for justice's sake, but rather we should seek justice for Christ's sake. Our people in our, this world, they can be charitable without Jesus. That's called social justice. But we are called to be about biblical justice. That means, should we care about feeding people who are hungry? Absolutely, we should. 
But we do so with food, but most importantly, with gospel on our lips, proclaiming to the understanding that, friend, though I give you this water in this moment, you will grow thirsty again, but there's an everlasting, ever eternal drink that is found only in the person and work of Jesus. Should we care about different issues from racism, all these sorts of things? Absolutely. But we do so not just standing on the corner yelling about social issues, but rather we stand on the corner, we stand with the broken, we stand with the oppressed, we stand with the marginalized, with the proclamation of the gospel on our lips, because we know at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what happens on this earth and on this planet, there is something truer and better, and his name is Jesus, and that is the only thing that is lasting. It's the only thing that is lasting. Now, Hope House is a great partner of ours, but if they didn't preach the gospel with people, we'd have nothing to do with them. Sorry, guys. The most important thing that Hope House does is proclaim the gospel. You remove the gospel restoration, and it's just a social thing. But you can adopt kids, you can foster kids, you can give people water, you can put up wells. And if you do so, apart from Christ, it is meaningless. But with Christ, it has an eternal purpose. And that's what we, the people of God, are to be about. Doing what is right. And we do so. We don't help the person in order to work our way back to heaven. No, we, we, we help the person who is lame, who is broken, who is, who is unclothed, and we give them our cloak who is beaten and broken and living in the ditch. Why? We do so out of a total reflection of that. Apart from Christ, we are those people. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Until we realize we are all poor and broken and beaten down, then we're doing that for our own glory. And yet God has called us to justice for his glory. For his sake. We, as Mission Church, want to live in such a way. We want to be so hilarious with our generosity and with our serving of people and with the proclamation of the gospel that earthly charities look like hate. Do you get that? That it was what is perceived good in this culture, for what it does for people, looks like hate. Because the gospel is so good. There's lots of questions there. And heck, you can't get around a hope person without them trying to throw a book called When Helping Hurts into your lap, right? Just everybody read it. Just Everybody, can we just all agree? Let's all get the book and let's read it so they'll leave us alone, okay? But there's great value and understanding, yes, there are ways to help people that really helps them, and then there are ways to help people that actually hurts them in the long run. And so we need to glean upon things like Hope House, this book, When Helping Hurts, but most important, we need to cling to Jesus and help people, but make sure that we're helping to the eternal significance, and that is with the gospel being preached. The idea of just giving people water and that being the gospel, no, you just gave them Aquafina. We give them water, 
with the Word. And we preach that and preach that and preach that and preach that and preach that, believing that God is going to save many. Let's pray together. Lord.